Hello and welcome to Class Session 6 of the Washington College Tolkien Course. Today we're going to make a bold effort to finish Leaf by Niggle so that we can be ready to begin Smith of Wooten Major in Class Session 7. And now we return to Leaf by Niggle. Back to Leaf by Niggle then. We are going... I want to start near where we ended last time. We actually did reasonably well last time in getting through the first half. I want to start with the voices. What are the two voices like? The first voice, uh, you know, the one he hears first, sounds like what? What is the quality of the first voice? Not, not, not the content, but the, the quality of it. How's it described? Does anyone recall? Yeah, Haley? Um, very critical, almost annoyed. Yeah, critical. It's, it, it, annoyed seems reasonable. Right? I mean, he's always coming back with things as, for instance, uh, uh, the, when the second voice says of Niggle, his heart was in the right place, the first voice immediately responds with, yes, but it did not function properly. Right? Um, so much more critical. Uh, and and this all, it does sound almost testy at times, or at least kind of comes off that way. What does it sound like? The Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> getting there, getting there. At the bottom of 109 is where we meet the voices, if you could call it that. But now he heard voices, not voices that he had ever heard before. There seemed to be a medical board, or perhaps a court of inquiry, going on close at hand, in an adjoining room with the door open, possibly, though he could not see any light. Now the niggle case, said a voice, a severe voice, more severe than the doctor's. So, severe is the primary adjective that's applied to the sound of the voice, right? And we've talked a little bit about its content. How about the second voice? A voice that you might have called gentle, though it was not soft. It was a voice of authority and sounded at once hopeful and sad. And what do the two voices do? The, second vo the first voice even comments at one point upon what appears to be the job of the second voice. Josh? Uh, I guess judgment. They even just based on that first that first description when he when he hears them, the fact that it sounds like a court of inquiry, right? The the, the impression he's given is that he is being sat in judgment upon, right? And now the niggle case, right? They are reviewing the records of his case. Um, so clearly, not the, and the first voice is very critical. Even the second voice is a voice of authority. So clearly we have judgment going on. Though the two voices agree by the end, right? You'll notice that the decision isn't made. The second voice doesn't just insist upon gentle treatment over the objections of the first. The very end of the conversation that he hears is the first voice agreeing with the second voice. You remember, by the way, what seems to turn the tide? What is it that apparently prompts the first voice to agree with the second voice? Eve, do you remember? The um, fact that Niggle was an artist and he drew very nicely. That's the first point that the second voice brings up, which is very important, I think, that that's the, the, the first thing first. But the thing where he didn't really, like, he never, he helped people and he never asked for anything in return. He didn't expect a return, capital, no, but the two voices use lots of capital letters. <laughs> Did you notice that? Uh, he never expected a return. 
Lance? Um, when uh, Trump's like asking the door what's going on, and he talks to other Niggles, does anyone like, seem to like, care what they said about him asking about his neighbor? Yes. Yes. Niggle asks after Parrish. And gives a couple arguments not on his own behalf, but on Parrish's behalf. And that's when, in response to that, the first voice says, okay, okay, gentle treatment. Not necessarily as an act of mercy, but what has happened here? Are they having pity on Niggle? Marta? Um, I don't think so, because Niggle, I think, kind of proves it for himself. He, he does ask about Parrish first, and instead of just Begging, he, just, he proved to them that he, that it was the right choice. Yeah, he's, he shows he's done here. He's done here. He's finished with, I don't know what they call this, the rough treatment or what, but anyway, but he's, the first phase, he's done with it, right? With the workhouse. And he's now ready for gentle treatment. He still needs treatment, but he's ready for phase two. And it is his, his advocacy of Parrish, um, his apparent forgiveness of Parrish, that... And his change of perspective, not only towards Parrish, but also towards himself and towards his own activities. Before in his life, what was he thinking about? Had this court of inquiry been happening right, like, you know, five minutes after he arrived at the workhouse? What would Niggle have talked about when he, when he opened his mouth? Louise? His painting. That's all he ever thought about in life, right? I mean, there's that description of even when, when guests come and he, he allows them to come and he invites them in, he's still always thinking about his painting in the back of his head, right? He goes, even the, 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 the point upon which the second voice wants to lay stress, that wet bicycle ride, right, which gave Niggle the fever, which seems eventually to have led to his death, in fact, right? Um, even while he's performing what we're invited to see as the most generous action of his life, a genuinely, you know, from his perspective, a genuinely self-sacrificial act for the sake of his neighbor, though he's grudging it, all the time he's grudging it, while he's doing it, he's not thinking of his neighbor, he's thinking of his painting still. Right? Um, and we're told, as time goes by in the workhouse, he ceases to think about his painting. So it is clearly a very good sign that when he starts contributing to the court of inquiry, when, he, you know, when he's given a chance to say something for himself, he doesn't. He says something for Parrish. Yeah, Jordan? Um, I'm not sure how this fits into the Christian theology that this is based off of, but um, it seems to me that the fact that he's thinking about his painting and ignoring it anyway makes him more noble the fact that he cares so deeply about this and is willing to sacrifice it for something else, if he had nothing to give up, he would not be making so as noble a sacrifice. Now that, and that's certainly true during his life at the time of the bike ride, right? You know, the thing that the second voice says, you know, he this is from his perspective, right? It's not that riding your bicycle through the rain to the doctor's office for, your, for the wife of your, of your you know, your, the sick wife of your neighbor is itself like among the greatest of sacrifices that human being has ever done for another, right? In an absolute standard, it's still a pretty small thing. Though, of course, the second voice is also the one who reminds us he was only a little man, and he was never very strong, right? He wasn't ever expected to do very much, and he didn't do very much. But within his scope and from his perspective, that was a big deal. Uh, And because his painting meant so much to him, it was for him a genuine act of sacrifice. 
It's not being considered on the absolute scale. It's being considered on the relative scale. Um, when you're actually thinking about what it meant for him to have made that decision. But in the workhouse, he is no longer sacrificing thinking about the painting. He just doesn't think about it anymore. He rarely thinks about it. After the first couple of weeks, he rarely thinks about it. Instead, what does he think about? What does he think about when he's lying in bed in the workhouse? Does anyone remember? Marta, do you remember? Um, it says that, uh, he said, I wish I had called on Parrish the first morning after the high winds began. I meant to. Reverse with Kyle. So in other words, he's, he's thinking about what he could have done with Parrish. Good. He's clearly reflected back on his relationship with Parrish and what he could have done. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. George? There's also the fact that he's thinking about all the work he neglected for the painting without really factoring the painting into that equation. It's just like, I was neglectful rather than making an excuse. Right. Though even there, it's less about remembering... I mean, he's not, for instance, thinking about his garden. He's not thinking like, oh, my garden, I really should have taken care... I was supposed to take care of my garden. I didn't take care of my garden. He's not thinking about all the potatoes he never... like the potato patches he never dug, right? Instead, of course, he's digging in the workhouse. Elise? But even though when he first gets there and he's lying in bed thinking about care, he only wishes he had helped earlier so he could have had a week longer for Yes. He isn't... Good, and that's a really great passage to contrast to when he speaks up to the voices, right? Because there we can see his heart has genuinely changed. It's no longer the means to the, the end, which is for him the painting. Now his end appears to be the good of his neighbor, the good of Parrish. And not only saying, I wish things had been better or I wish I could have helped him, but actually doing Notice how he's doing the work of the second voice? He is doing for Parrish what the second voice is doing for him? What the first voice characterizes as putting the best possible light on things? Even though he rather disliked Parrish during his life and was often annoyed by him and appears to have been at least irritated, perhaps even hurt, that Parrish never noticed his painting, never commented on the painting, never cared about his painting, instead always ignored his painting and complained about his garden, right? But all of that stuff is forgotten or at least forgiven, and instead he emphasizes, he did did give me potatoes. And he had a genuine lame leg, which must have caused him a lot of suffering. His perspective really has changed, especially towards Parrish, but clearly also towards his painting and through that towards himself, towards his whole, his whole life. Later on in the workhouse, when he's lying there thinking, he's thinking about the work that he does, his carpentry work, planning out the work he might do the next day, the chores that he hasn't gotten to yet, how he might best go about things. When we talked before about some of the ways in which sort of the, the subject of work that he does corrects the work, you know, it atones in some sense for, for the work that he neglected in his life. But notice also how he himself is being changed. Not only did he not do this work, you know, helping with houses, maintaining his garden, not only did he not do that stuff in life, but even the stuff that he did do, namely painting, he didn't do a great job with, right? Not about his talent as a painter, but about his 
stick to right? His organization, he was a niggler. Dabbling here, there, never finishing, not getting around to things. He becomes efficient in the workhouse. He gets things done and lies there in bed planning ahead. How can I accomplish what I need to do tomorrow best so that I can finish my jobs? And he does it, right? So we can see him being his sort of abilities, his skills being corrected. Shrewd guesses it at who the voices are within our allegory. <laughs> Kelly's been bursting to say it for, <laughs> <laughs> for all week, I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, God and Jesus. Yes. The first voice, some people, because it sounds like such an accusatory voice, uh, some people are, are sort of inclined to, to think of this as a much more like something like Satan and God, that is like an evil voice and a good voice. But I think it's clearly not. The, the first voice and the second voice are working together. Um, you could say something like the, you know, the, 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 the first two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, or God and Jesus. I think one could also, thinking in similar ways, so what they are expressing is justice and mercy, right? Truth and grace. That first voice isn't mean. He's not like trying to, tell, but he is honest, and he is showing like what he has, what he has merited, what his deeds actually were, and what the consequences of those are. And the second one saying, "But consider these other things." The second, the 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 hope and sadness, the authority and gentleness of the second one. I, 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 it's hard not to think that we're supposed to be thinking of Jesus here uh, for, that, for that second voice. But again, clearly, clearly mercy. And more than mercy, grace. Grace is what is emphasized in, in the gentle treatment. That description... At the very end of the section I asked you to stop at before, Nigel thought he had never heard anything so generous as that voice. It made gentle treatment sound like a load of rich gifts and the summons to a king's feast. Then suddenly Nigel felt ashamed. To hear that he was considered a case for gentle treatment overwhelmed him and made him blush in the dark. It was like being publicly praised when you and all the audience know that the praise was not deserved. Nigel hid his blushes in the rough blanket. Notice that's the point at which the voices begin to address him. You have been listening. Right? His reaction, his spontaneous reaction, his internal reaction, he doesn't even realize that anyone is seeing him or paying attention to him. Right? Is a consciousness of the extent to which he doesn't deserve the grace that's being suggested for him. And that, even before he says anything, is the first thing which seems to indicate maybe he's ready for it. Now, what is gentle treatment? You get uh, a bike, a snack. What's the snack? (laughs) Bread and wine. Uh, Bread and wine is all they eat in gentle treatment. Why would you need anything else other than bread and wine? Uh, and this, I mean, this is, uh, uh, there's a reason, there are 
two reasons uh, that Tolkien referred to bread and wine way back when he was talking about fairy and on fairy stories, not only because of the connection with Christian tradition, but with a connection to fairy tradition as well. Bread and wine are is a, a, a theme in fairy, and there are many fairy stories. Whenever you read a story of the Holy Grail, you will usually find that the, the Fisher King subsists only on bread and wine. Even before that becomes explicitly the communion host that's being born to him, usually in the Holy Grail. But anyway, um, so you got some bread and wine. Get on your bicycle. It's, got his, it's, it's, it's labeled, right? The bike actually has his name on it. And off he goes. When does he fall off his bicycle? And then when he sees this tree, he looks up. He sees the tree. Yeah, he sees the tree and falls over. What's going on here? Let's talk about the tree. What is the relationship between the tree that Niggle sees in the place which will later be called Niggle's Parish, combining the name of both Niggle and Parish? Um, what is the relationship between that tree and Niggle's painting? Liz? Um, Nigel's painting is like what he was, like the tree is actually what he saw, and Nigel's painting is like the rendition of it, so it's poorly done. Okay, so when you say what he saw, you mean like from the bicycle? Like, it's the image he had in his head. Like, I want to describe it in terms of like Narnia when they had to fly <laughs> higher up, and it was for that like, was more real than like the, the world it came from in the last book. This is a is a little bit less platonic uh, than Book 7 of the Chronicles of Narnia, but not much, actually. There's a lot of Plato going on here. Um, this is the... Yeah, well, I don't have time to lecture on Plato before we do the rest, so I, I won't go there. But again, those of you who have had the benefit of philosophy classes will recognize uh, some of the implication of what's going on there. Um, but Liz, back to what you said, it's, remember the description of his experience of painting it in the first place, right? Remember I read that passage and we talked about that? It's not, then he thought, hey, how about some birds? I think I'll put in some birds, right? Instead, how does he talk about those? Yeah. Birds, birds came in and had to be attended to, right? The tree spreads out, uh, a, a forest you know, comes in in the distance, right? It's something that he's discovering. He's not inventing it. It's like he's finding it or seeing it. So I agree. One, one implication here does seem to be that now he is seeing the real tree, the tree which he himself had been glimpsing. This is what he was trying to communicate through his art. It exists outside him. It's not in his head. It's not just an imaginary picture. Right? But, but it's more complicated than that. That seems to be true. But there's more than that. At least what else is, is there? But, like, that's what I thought originally. And then when I looked at it again, it almost seems like as he was painting his picture, the tree was like actually growing. Because the line says, it's a gift he said he was referring to his heart and also to the result. Yes. So his art and the result, like the result is the tree. 
Yes. I thought, well, maybe it's like more metaphorical, whatever, where his paint has these paint stainless and browning. But this is just like what it would look like if he had actually finished. Good. Good. I don't. Th- I, I. I think Elise is exactly right here. I don't think that there is a very clear, one-directional cause and effect thing going on between his painting and the tree. Is it true that the painting exists beyond himself, and that the painting he was making was just his attempt to depict with canvas and paint this tree, which he was having an image of in his mind? Yes, that seems to be true. But something almost like the reverse seems to be true as well. The painting that he made or at least the painting that he was trying to make, is here made, made real. So that the real tree derives from the, the painted tree. But, but the painted tree was deriving from the real tree. It's, 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 very, it's very circular. You can't really nail down which comes first. You see how that works? Look at the description of the tree. On page 113, is when he sees the tree. Look at the bottom of 113. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there, as he had imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were many others that had only budded in his mind, and many that might have budded if only he had had time. Nothing was written on them, They were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There's no other way of putting it. And we'll come back to the collaboration. But again, you see the significance there? He doesn't just say, these are the leaves that I was trying to paint all along. These are the leaves, these are his leaves. In his style. It's not just there were real leaves which he tried to capture, and so therefore his painting had his style. These real leaves derive their shape and their appearance from his painting style. You see? The only difference between them, apart from the you know, medium and stuff, is that <laughs> the imperfections caused by the flaws in his art are gone. Right? I mean, he never, he never perfectly captured the leaf that he tried to do. So they're as he conceived them in his mind rather than as he actually managed to put them on canvas. That is, all of the weakness of his human art is removed. But the product of his fantasy, of his imagination, that's what's there. And yet it is also the cause of his imagination. You see how it goes both ways? What is the, what is the implication of the fact that There are three categories of leaves on that tree, right? The leaves that he had painted, the leaves that he had planned to paint but didn't, and what's the third category? Yeah, Brittany? (laughs) The leaves he eventually would have thought of. He hadn't thought of them yet, but he would have thought of them. You can see again how this, it's plainly not just representing what he did. He didn't even do those in any way yet. But he would have done. Okay. Notice what his response to it. Not the first one, which is a very important one, the one that Elise quoted, right? His first response is it's a gift. 
Again, he's emphasizing, he is recognizing the grace involved here. It's a gift. The tree is a gift, and his art was a gift. Last full paragraph on 114. Nigel walked about, but he was not merely pottering. He doesn't do that anymore. He used to all the time, right? But he doesn't just potter anymore. He was looking round carefully. The tree was finished, though not finished with. Just the other way about to what it used to be, he thought. You remember that? I emphasized that last time. Right? The driver shows up and he says it's not finished, and the driver says it's finished with as far as you're concerned. Now, oh, it's, now it's the opposite. It's finished, but it's not finished with. What does that mean? Duncan? Does finished with have something to do with it's not being used to its potential? I don't think so. I think it means like that from an artistic standpoint. That he as the artist is not finished with it yet. Not finished in the sense of, uh, in that sense, like the afterlife of the, of the piece of art. Not in like the, the way that uh, the audiences will be receiving it. He himself, it is not, is not finished with by him, the artist. But it's finished. What are those two things? What are these two concepts? For a thing to be finished and for a thing to be finished with. Try explaining them individually, and then we'll see how they work both before and after the journey. Elise, what do you think? Well, finished with, um, reminding me of, like, the whole idea that with art and, like, writing or painting, you never finish editing. Like, there's always more that you can do. So the idea of a finished product doesn't really, an argument is that it doesn't exist, because you can always change it. And artists or writers are, are always thinking about new ways that they can change their book, even like after they're published. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like how I took it. Like, you don't know if you finished. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Um, my interpretation was that it was finished in the sense that it had been, I actually took it in a different way, that it had been completed, but its impact was not finished. I, that's, it's certainly true that its impact is not finished, but, but, I, but I don't think that that's what he's saying here. That's a, that's a different question. Here, what I would come back to, and at least I'd pick up on some of the terms that you were using. Think about it grammatically. It is finished is a, is a statement about the work of art, right? Whether or not it is finished with is a statement about the artist and the practice of the artist, right? Before his journey, it was finished with as far as he was concerned because he was done. He was out of time. Right? So he was being forced to stop working on it. But the art, he's looking at the canvas and saying, it, this piece of art, it's not finished. Now he's looking at the tree. The tree is finished. It's not imperfect. He's not looking around saying, oh, boy, this thing needs work. It's perfect, but it's not finished with. But he's not done with it. There's more that he needs to do. And what is he doing? He's walking around. Now the new niggle, the reformed niggle who is no longer a niggler, right? Who is now looking around and calculating carefully what needs to be done in what order and how he can accomplish it, right? The tree's done. He's not. This is treatment. Remember, this whole thing is, is, is his gentle treatment. And that's what is going to be happening in gentle treatment, his 
completion, not of the tree itself, but of him, but of him, of, of, of himself. In order to complete it, what does he need? Perish. He needs perish. This, of course, again, we see the fruit of that change that happened in the workhouse, right? His new understanding, his new connection with the community, with, with the parish. Notice, back to the significance of that sentence that I read at the end of that paragraph. The best leaves that he sees on the tree. Notice the emphasis. Some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style was seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. It's not just, ah, I now must enter a new phase in order to be finished with this tree, in order to complete my treatment. The phase of collaboration. Before, he was an artist working in a shed by himself, right? Now... He needs to change that perspective to be working in community with other people. But it's not just that. It's not just now it's time to flip the light light switch on. Now when he looks at those leaves, he sees they were done all along in collaboration with Parrish. The ones that are best, the ones that are most beautiful. And paradoxically, most characteristic of the Niggle style, the ones that are most individual to him are the ones that he did in collaboration with Parrish. Obvious, unwitting collaboration. We know that Parrish never paid a lick of attention to his painting. Never liked it. Was never interested. But in some way, they had collaborated. And now he knows he can't continue without Parrish, without collaborating. So what happens? Well, before we get to what happens... How does this help us understand the laws of the country? Remember in the first half of the story, it sounds like the laws of the country, which are very strict, are in conflict with art. It sounds like Nigel lives in a country where art is devalued. Houses come first. Let's tear down your great painting and use it to patch holes in roofs. How insensitive. Right? And all of his social duties, all of the things he is criticized for neglecting, well, he only neglects them in order to work on his painting. He wants a public pension. He wants somebody to come in and tell him, don't worry about anything else. You just keep up your painting and you have no further responsibilities. But he knows that's not going to happen. The laws of the land are very strict and he has all these responsibilities. He's got to be social with people. He's got to help his neighbor. He's got to keep up his garden. He's got to help fix other people's houses. What a drag. What a, what a terrible, you know, taking him away from his painting. How does our perspective on the laws of the country change here in this passage? Yeah, Rachel? Well, I think when you say um, that what was said to him was houses come first, you see that it's not that they don't value art, they don't value painting, it's that they value community more. And first, before you can do something for yourself, which in any case would be doing his own painting, you have to make sure everyone else is happy and make sure your neighbor 
the roof is not leaking in on its thing. Like you need to do other things to other people before you can rebuild the structure yourself. Yeah, yeah. Clear. It's not that painting is not important. That the second voice shows that that's not true. Right. Number one point in his favor is that he was a painter. But but how does it come first? Other people come first. What about Parrish? What did Parrish do wrong? This is a story about Niggle, and most of it is about Niggle, but uh, we are told the narrator gives some criticism of Parrish. Parrish doesn't get away scot-free at the beginning. Marta? Well, Parrish was kind of the complete opposite. He had no um, appreciation for artwork at all. She called it Niggle's nonsense or the, the daubing. <laughs> that daubing, right? Yes. Yes. Like he's building mud pies or something. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, a little appreciation for the painting might not have gone amiss from Parrish. What else might Parrish have done that he didn't do? Haley? Um, <laughs> Stop complaining and start helping him with his garden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he does, we learn from Niggle later on, do the one thing of, of helping him with potatoes and give him potatoes. He sells them, sells them to him at a reasonable price. But still, you know, that's something. But a little more of that, a little more of, 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 of the helping. But I think here, it's not just, we, could, we can't push this too far and say the rules of the country say only paint in your spare time. But rather, community comes first, but the two aren't in conflict. That seems to be the message of that description of the leaves that he gets that the most beautiful, the most idiosyncratic, the most characteristic of his style are done in collaboration with Parrish. He never collaborated on a painting with Parrish. But he did sometimes help Parrish. And he did sometimes work together with Parrish. Not as often as either of them should have done. But sometimes it did happen. And apparently, it's reflected in the tree itself. It's reflected in his art. Remember, some of these leaves are leaves not only that he didn't paint, but that he didn't even think of yet. And many of them, the implication, I think, is that the minority of the leaves that he sees on the trees are leaves that he actually painted. Some he just thought of, some he hadn't thought of at all. His own imagination, his own conception of the leaves is impacted by his life with Parrish, by his community. Had he had a better relationship with Parrish in his life, he'd have been a better painter. He would have understood leaves better. So Parrish shows up. Parrish shows up and thanks him. Why? Jordan, why does he thank him? Um, he's misunderstanding grace. He says, the second voice, you know, he has said you, he has you ask me. I owe it to you. And then Niggle's about, no, you owe it to the second voice. Yeah, we both do. Now, he does say, thanks, Niggle, for putting in a good word for him, right? Niggle does put in a good word for him. And he does suggest that he's, 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 got, he's, got, he's moved on to gentle treatment a little sooner than he might have done had Niggle not put in a good word for him. But, yeah, uh, Niggle is very correct in saying, no, don't thank me. Thank the second voice. Um, but anyway, here he is. The tree isn't finished with. What does it need? What do they need to do? It it needs to be a house and garden. It's good. It's perfect. It's finished. But it needs a house. It seems to be required, he says. The picture wouldn't be complete 
without a house and garden. So what does Niggle do? What does he spend his time doing when he and, and Parrish are working on the tree together? Not the tree itself they're working on. Working on that country together. Page 115. As they worked together, it became plain that Niggle was now the better of the two at ordering his time and getting things done. Oddly enough, it was Niggle who became most absorbed in building and gardening, while Parrish often wandered about looking at trees, and especially at the tree. One day, Niggle was busy planting a quickset hedge, and Parrish was lying on the grass nearby, looking attentively at a beautiful and shapely little flower growing in the green turf. So what's the situation here? Parrish is a horrible slacker and leaving Niggle to do all the hard work? Yeah, Chris? When you probably say that uh, Parrish went through his journey similar to uh, the Niggles, but instead of doing like the Niggles tasks, like Niggles did, you probably did things that made him value art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I often like to imagine Parrish's time in the workhouse, right? And now, ceramics, right? You know? <laughs> 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 Move on to watercolors. I mean, it's something like that. Exactly. He's, he had to have the same kind of complementary. The other undeveloped half of himself had to be fleshed out. So it, based upon what we've seen in the pattern in Niggle's life, um, Parrish lying there on the grass looking at the beauty of a flower, you've got to think that's what he's supposed to be doing. That in some sense, difficult to define, he is contributing as much to this process as Niggle is. Um, and as much as what they're doing, both of them, is completely opposite to what they did before, it, that, it's, that seems to be a good thing. It has been corrected. I just love that image of Niggle digging the hedge and, uh, and uh, Parrish lounging there on the grass <laughs> looking at flowers. It's just fantastic. Um, yeah, Eve, go ahead. One of the Earlier in the story, Niggle is saying how he wished that he had a friend who could compliment his art. Maybe the fact that Parrish has learned to enjoy the art, the nature of this country, is his job, is his helping Niggle yeah. more beautiful. Yeah, and, and, that, and I don't think that that implies a kind of subordinate nature to Parrish's significance, right? Like, your job is to be the dude who sits there and says... Gosh, that's an awful nice painting. <laughs> Hooray, niggle. Like, I'm like your Ed McMahon over on the side. You know? No, I mean, clearly, it's an equal collaboration. Of course, the other implication, just as Niggle's painting would have been better had he been working together with Parrish throughout his life, so presumably Parrish would have grown better potatoes had he spent more time looking at Niggle's painting, right? Um, it, it's, the connection between them is very mutual uh, in that way. So I agree, there is something... He is contributing. He is contrib- by, his, by his aesthetic appreciation, by his contemplation of beauty, that's what he is now contributing to this. Um, and Niggle is contributing <coughs> the organization and hard work and digging hedges. Yeah. Um, what I found interesting about that scene was that Harris like, walks around the tree and he saw the tree so many times, but he doesn't recognize it. Yeah. Until the very end, like after everything. He's, he still has to be told, did you paint this? Yeah, actually. Nice of you to notice. Yeah. Uh, no, exactly. And we'll come to that. That's, of course, a really important scene. But I, but I agree. It's, uh, it's very interesting. 
that Parrish seems completely clueless uh, about that. It just shows you to what extent he didn't pay attention uh, during his life, that he doesn't recognize it at all. Um, remember the overall context here. This is recuperation. This is treatment. And we can see the treatment taking effect. At first, they still disagree and get tired and have to take breaks. They're, they've been given a tonic, right, which they have to drink with water from the spring. Eventually, they finish the tonics. They don't need them anymore. Parrish loses his limp. In the end, Nickel moves on to the mountains. Now he's ready for the mountains. And whom does he meet who's going to take him to the mountains? A shepherd. With any number of associations that might be made with that. Uh, to take him up into the mountains. Parrish isn't ready yet. He's going to stay a little, lo- a little while longer. Why? He's waiting for his wife. I don't know if she's still in the workhouse or what, but, uh, <laughs> but she's, not, she's not ready yet. And he goes to the mountains. What's the relationship between the mountains and the trees? And the tree, I should say. The mountains part of his painting? Kind of. Liz? <laughs> Yeah, he just he just had a vague sense of the mountains in the background. He was picturing a spray of leaves, and yeah, there were there were mountains behind the leaves. It was the leaves he was focusing on, the leaves he was picturing. But he did have this sense that there were mountains in the background. Now, now he's going to the mountains. Yeah, Jordan. Yeah, later on, what do they do with uh, they, I mean, you know, the voices, management, what do they do with this region? Once Nigel and Parrish are both finished with it. Yeah. So that's an introduction to the mountains? Yes. It's great for holidays. It's great for recuperation. Lots of people come here for recuperation. This becomes the, the place for gentle treatment for lots of people. And he emphasizes for some, it's the best introduction to the mountains. The mountains are the goal. But one function is that it serves as a way to introduce people to it. What is the role of the artist, according to this story? What does an artist do? Time for some conclusion. Think about Nagel's relationship with his painting, the relationship between his painting and the tree, his relationship with the tree, the function of the tree. In the region? Marta? Um, I think kind of what I got out of it was that an artist is supposed to kind of give people a glimpse of heaven while they're still on earth. It's kind of the, the bottom line I got to. He clearly, he sees glimpses, and even in his painting on earth, you could, you could see the mountains. Not real clearly, but you could still see them. You could see the tree better, but even the tree itself is an introduction to the mountains, right? Yes. Clearly, an artist can get a glimpse of the mountains and introduce people to the mountain. Good. Yeah, Rachel? I think those are kind of central to the important part of being an artist is being able to see the people around you and being able to 
Yes, good. And here we should be thinking of the, the overheard conversation between Tompkins and Atkins, right? Um, and the debate that they have about the utility of art, basically. What is painting good for? Propaganda, essentially, right? Or maybe there's something more to it. And Atkins has been affected. Um, now, the important thing, I think, to emphasize that there's a couple things, Rachel, and what you said that I think are important. One is that the emphasis on community, right? It's not the artist working alone. In order for the artist to perfect his art, in order for the, for the art of an artist to work best, it has to be in collaboration with others, even if it's this kind of metaphorical collaboration. Community is necessary. It's a community, it is a human community effort. But there's more to art than just providing a glimpse of the mountains. Improve this. Because if that were it, then once you see the mountains, you'd leave the art behind. Right? If you're looking out a window at a landscape, when you get to the landscape, you don't spend any time looking back at the window. Right? Or there's a door that you need to go through to get there. You're done with the door once you pass through it. It's only the landscape that matters. The tree doesn't lose its value. It's not just a vehicle. It's not like a bicycle that takes you to the mountains. Once they get to the mountains, they still keep the tree. It has value in itself, not only as a derivative of or introduction to the mountains. And that's all for today. Before I go, I'd like to give a special thanks to Mac Boyle, Washington College Class of 2011, who has very generously begun assisting me with the audio editing process and thereby saving me a great deal of time. Mac, I am very grateful. In next class, I'll start off with a, a few brief concluding thoughts about Leaf by Niggle, and then we will move on to discussing the first half of Smith of Wooten Major. Our discussion will end right after the section when Smith returns home and, and looks at the living flower with his family. The part that ends with, And those who inherited the key would at times open the casket and look long at the living flower, till the casket closed again. The time of its shutting was not theirs to choose. So enjoy the first half of the story, and we'll talk about it next class. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.